You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway Church. Good to see you. Everybody doing all right? Okay. All right. All right. Come on, decaf service. We're going to get up and running. I'm excited. If you have a Bible with you, I'd love to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 9. If you are a A guest among us here this morning, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. Just grateful you're with us, grateful just to be in this space together, seeing more and more new faces, or old faces actually, coming back, being made new here. It's been great, Uh, so encouraging. And we are in, uh, in the middle of a study of one of the letters that's included in our New Testament on the book of Romans. We call it the book of Romans, written to uh, the church in Rome in the first century, and this If you're not familiar with Romans, oh my goodness, this is such a beautiful letter that is articulating and explaining to this young church in Rome about what the good news of Jesus is all about. The, what we would call the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's ultimate rescue plan to come save and redeem a lost and broken world that is trapped and enslaved in the mire of our sin and the power of Jesus to save us and make us new. And we have said from the beginning, every, I mean, this, this whole gospel, this good news of Jesus is like this beautiful diamond that Paul is just putting on display for the, the whole world to see here in this letter. And every chapter, man, even every paragraph in some places is just like turning that diamond and showing a different facet of who God is, how he saves and everything in between in the ultimate end. And, and what we've seen, I mean, right out of the gate, Paul showed, really answered, uh, asked and answered one of the greatest questions that, that uh, any worldview seeks to ask and answer, and why is the world the way it is? Why is it so broken? And Paul comes right out of the gate in Romans chapter one and talks about it, it, was, it has been made this way because of, of the sin uh, that is within our own hearts of a a selfish creation choosing to worship the creation rather than the creator and rejecting God. And therefore a curse was put upon this planet, all humanity that has fractured it beyond repair of our own human strength. And apart from God's intervention, we are all hosed. It is just, it is just the brokenness put on display. But yet what we see in the midst of that brokenness is what our truest need is. Our truest need is not more morality. It's not just more good people because this side of heaven, there is no such thing as good. When you take your goodness and compare it to other human beings, yeah, you can play that Darwinistic game. But when you take your goodness and you put it against God's goodness, you agree with Romans chapter three, verse 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no one who is good, not one. And so what we see, what's needing right now is we need a righteousness that we don't possess. We need a righteousness that we cannot earn, that we do not deserve, but can only be given as an act of mercy and grace by God. And that is the solution that Paul shows us in Romans 3, is that God sent his own son Jesus into the world to live like we couldn't live and to absorb the consequence of the penalty of our sin that we deserved, which was death, alienation from God. He took the wrath of God, the justice of God. It was placed on him on that cross. All of our sins were placed on him. And to those of us who trust in him, he then gives us his righteousness. He imputes, he deposits his righteousness into our account and makes us clean, forgives us of our iniquities and our sins. 
And just as Jesus rose from the dead by placing our faith in him, we too have risen to newness of life in him. And day by day, he's transforming us, even in the midst of the brokenness of the suffering of this world, because the presence of sin still exists, even though on the cross, the power of sin and the penalty of sin has been defeated. And as we walk through brokenness, what Paul fast forwards and shows us is to the one who's put their faith in Jesus, He has now grabbed hold of you, and even in the midst of your worst sufferings, he cannot lose you. And what he showed us in Romans chapter 8 was this beautiful security that is the believers. God will not drop the ball on you. He will carry you through all the way to the end. But what he does in Romans 8 and 9 to further prove his point of why God cannot lose his children is he does something theologically here that becomes a challenge for us, but was meant to be a a comfort. He pulls back the theological curtains and shows us in Romans 8 9 the most ultimate reason of why God cannot lose his children. And that is because before you were even born, before the foundations of the earth were even laid, God chose you to be holy and blameless in Christ. He chose you by his divine mercy and grace to come to salvation in Jesus Christ. And if anybody is sitting in this room as a believer in Christ, that's why we're here. That's what Paul, and he's trying to say, so whom God chooses, God cannot lose. It didn't have anything to do with you to begin with, and so it's not up to you to preserve it to the end. He's going to guard that for you. He's going to guard that deposit. And what Paul did in writing that truth was to encourage the most afflicted believer who's wrestling in doubts, who's wrestling in persecution to go, oh my, he's got me. And that should be a comfort to us. But unfortunately, what it does to so many of us is just that theological curtain being pulled back draws some serious tension with us. And like any good father who's trying to explain to his children some complex truths that are for their good, you can anticipate some questions are going to be fired. They're going to come right at us. And certainly in Romans chapter 9, Paul is going to anticipate those questions. Four specific questions that he is going to ask and answer that I promise you, if you've ever read this text faithfully and intellectually, truthfully, you've asked these same questions. And uh, we saw one of them a couple of weeks ago when Brady taught through verses 1 through 13. And uh, it really revolves around the question, is God unfaithful? Because if you really understand that God has chosen some for salvation, well, that must mean he has not chosen others. Because clearly there are other people who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ, so they're not of that predetermined choice. And so is God unfaithful to his word? And the reason that question is being asked is because in Paul's context, he's thinking specifically of his fellow kinsmen, his Jewish people. It's the people of God. And if only the elect are those who put their faith in Jesus Christ and are saved. Well, last I checked, the largest swath of Israel is not trusting in Jesus Christ right now. And aren't those God's people? So are you saying God is unfaithful to his word? And we dealt with that in those first 13 verses. Paul says, by no means. Because the truth is, God's sovereign choice was never predicated upon your genealogy. Just because you were born a Jew, ethnic Jew, does not obligate you to salvation. God is not obligated to save every natural born Jew just because of their ethnicity. That's not what his sovereign grace is predicated upon. It is predicated upon his divine will that is in grace alone through Jesus Christ. 
And he gives examples. We saw this in the first 13 verses. He goes to Isaac and Ishmael. If we're going to play genealogy, well, we should be going through Ishmael because he was Abraham's firstborn. And if God made promises that he was going to save through his physical line, then I guess it should start with Ishmael. And God goes, we ain't playing that way. We're not playing by physical lineage. We're playing by my choice. And I'm choosing through miracle to bring this salvific line through Isaac, not Ishmael. And then through his sons, two twins, Jacob and Esau, should go to the firstborn, right? Which was Esau. It's where the blessing should have gone, the primogenitor. But God says, we ain't going to play that way here. I'm going to go with the secondborn. I'm going to go with Jacob. And I'm going to show you this to show that according to my divine will and my divine choice that is rooted in grace, not your works, not your lineage, not even you, not your deeds. God picked uh, Jacob while he's still in the womb. He hadn't even done anything. And so you see the first question, is God unfaithful? Paul goes, no way. God is faithful because his elect are not those of physical nature. It's those who are born again by the Spirit, by trusting in Jesus Christ. But there's a second question that comes in, and you can see it coming from a mile away. And this is a question I have asked a thousand times in my journey as a Christian. And I'm sure you have asked it too if you have walked closely enough with God in this text. And we're going to see this in verses 14 through 18. You can see, when you think about the fact that Paul's told us God is sovereignly responsible for your salvation, and he has chosen it before the the earth was even formed, and it means others have been passed over, well, certainly you can see the next question, verse 14, what shall we say to that? Is there injustice on God's part? Meaning, certainly, that is not just unfaithful of God. That is unfair of God. That is not just. How how can God be just in choosing some and not others? That is completely unfair. And here's the deal. What's the assumption that is being made when we hear that God chooses some and not others, and we go, that's not fair? What's the assumption that's in that criticism? What should God have done according to man's complaint? God should have chosen everybody, not one over the other. He should have chosen everybody. We go universalist. That's our complaint about that's not fair, that's not just. And I'm telling you, I've asked that question a thousand times in my Christian life. But let let me reframe something for us because this is the journey that I've been on in my tensions, even in this text, of reframing from God's perspective, not ours. And part of that starts with this observation. I find it interesting when we accuse God of being unfair in his sovereign choice of salvation, that it's based on, you should have chosen everybody, not just some. But none of us, and I had to come to grips with this, none of us, including myself, ever launched the argument, that's not fair, God. You shouldn't have picked anybody. You should have sent them all to hell, God. I never launched that one at God. It's always you should have picked everybody. If you're going to pick this person, you better pick this person. Unpartiality, right? And and so let me reframe it here. I think I've shared this illustration, but I want to put a twist on it that I think will help us see God's perspective on this versus our God's infinite perspective versus our finite perspective. Um, Let's let's assume for a moment. You are married in here, you have a spouse that you love, and you have one child that has been given you. And you're excited to begin growing this family, and you have this this beautiful home, this beautiful family together, 
And not long after this whole thing gets started, one particular night, 10 men break into your house. 10 men break into your house. 10 men come in. They, they begin to steal every possession in your home. But they don't just stop there. They end up that night taking the life of your spouse and taking the life of your only child. Brutal. And on their way out, as you are in tears, you hear them mocking and scorning the whole event. Now, let's say a few weeks later, all 10 men are captured. They are brought to justice. They are brought to trial. All 10 men are there in court. They're ready to hear the sentencing phase. Evidence is totally stacked against them. They're guilty. And then you show up to the courtroom, and by some stroke of irony here, of justice, right before the death sentence is to fall on these 10 men, based on some ancient, un, ancient law previously unknown until right now, the judge says, you actually have your personal choice to pardon any or all of these 10 men, if you so choose. The choice is up to you. You can have all 10 men executed. You can, you can take one of them and pardon me, take all 10 and pardon them. But here's the deal. If you are gonna pardon them, you can't just let them run back on the streets as they were because we can't have convicted felons just out running crazy again. What you're gonna have to do to ensure that their life is transformed is you're actually gonna have to adopt those ones that you pardon. You're going to have to bring them into your home. You're going to clothe them in your former child's uh, attire, give them all your child's stuff, including their old room, and you're going to have to love them as your own. That's the only deal. Now, that choice is given to you. What do you choose? Would you choose to release all 10? Would you release even just one? You know what you do? Heck no, none of them. Because you're a liar if you go the other way. None of us would do that. We would all look at that and go, no way. They took my spouse, they took my kid, they mocked. This is justice. You know why? We have in our cultural moment right now, we would all say that's justice by giving them all the due penalty of what they deserve. Okay, all 10. But let's say for just a moment, you pardon just one of them, okay? Just one, you pardoned. And you took them to live in your home and basically take the life of your child and raise them as your own now, that one. What would the rest of culture say about you for doing that? What would your social media timeline look like if that news got out that you pardoned one and left nine to go on to meet their justice. You, you would, they would say something is wrong with you in the head. Like there is something not right upstairs. For you to do something like that, how dare you take one? All 10 deserve their due penalty. And you would take one and put them in your home? Are you crazy? <laughs> and you see, everybody in our culture would have at least some sense of understanding of what justice is in that moment and they think you're crazy for doing it. Now, let me ask you this question. What is worse, 
what those 10 men did to your family or what you and I have done to our living God, Jesus Christ. And mocking him, handing him over to death. You remember, Paul has already shown us in Romans 1 through 3 how guilty we are before God. All of us have sinned and fallen short. Every one of us are guilty of sin and deserve true justice, which is death and alienation from God. Like we all deserve that. You remember Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, fallen short. Case closed. And yet, the fact that God would choose to save even one sinner out of that sea of iniquity, that God would even save one from their due penalty, how easy it is for us to pipe back and go, that's unfair, that's unjust. Do you see how we get it flipped? We get it totally backwards in this moment. We, and I've said it before, you and I, we will never get Romans 8 and 9, as tough as it is, and I am not gonna dodge the tensions in this chapter. I feel them like you do. I'm not gonna dodge them. But you will never get Romans 8 and 9 if you don't get Romans 1 through 3 first. If you don't understand how guilty you are before God, you will never get his sovereign mercy to save and redeem. Now, Paul says at the end of verse 14, by no means is God choosing one and passing over others. Is that unjust? You can't make that argument because in verse 15, when God chooses to save some and pass over others who are guilty, that choice is not based on justice. It is based on what in verse 15? It is based on mercy. As God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So what is God's sovereign choice based on? Not justice, it is based on mercy. Now, y'all notice where that quote is taken from? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, compassion on whom I have compassion. That is actually quoted directly from Exodus 33. You remember what Exodus 33 was? Exodus 33 was the golden calf incident in Israel. God takes Moses up on the Mount Sinai, is giving him the Ten Commandments, and while they're doing that, down below, all the people are rebelling against God, and they're worshiping a golden calf that they formed with their own hands. God had every right in that moment to incinerate them for their rebellion and their idolatry. And remember, Moses sees it, and he goes up. He knows what God's going to do. Justice would say, take them all out. But Moses goes up and pleads with God, and God says in that moment, okay, I am going to grant mercy to them. But he made it clear to Moses, the call to save is mine. It's not yours, Moses. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. So is God's sovereign election an act of justice? No, it is an act of mercy. It is not a matter of why doesn't God save all but rather the question of why would God even save any? That's how we're framing this. Now, Paul's summary is in verse 16. In verse 16, Paul says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but it depends on God, who, by the way, is the one who has mercy. Now, what is the it that he's referring there when he says it depends not on human will? The it is salvation in context, salvation. He says, salvation does not rest on man's will. That's your choosing, has nothing to do with it. 
And he says it doesn't rest on your exertion. That's your works, your effort. Your effort, your religious deeds, your choice that thinks you're smarter than everybody else to choose God and while everybody else doesn't, it does not rest on that, Paul says. God's salvation is not dependent on any of those things. It is dependent upon God's mercy alone. That's who it's dependent upon. Aren't you glad, by the way, if God, first of all, let's just sit in attention. If God is gonna choose, aren't you glad it's not based on the merit of human individuals? That it's not based on the best of humanity, some Darwinistic partiality working itself out? I mean, look around the room. Is this the best humanity has to offer right here? Starting with me, heck no, man, I'm host. If it's all based on me, it is based on God's mercy. I had uh, one of my old pastors used to say all the time, listen, if you knew about me, what I know about me, you would have never showed up here today, this Sunday. But if we knew about you, what you know about you, we probably never would have let y'all in. Like, let's just be straight. But aren't we thankful that our gathering in God's church isn't based upon that? It is based upon, we are not gathered in this room today as an act of God's justice. We are gathered in this room today, those who've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ as an act of God's mercy that stepped in in time and space and grabbed hold of us when we didn't deserve it. That's what Paul is arguing here. Now, in verse 17, Paul's gonna give another illustration here. Only this time, instead of a positive illustration of God's choosing, he's gonna show the other side of it that we tend to have the the tension with, his passing over. And specifically, how it is that God can use a sinful, wicked human being to accomplish other purposes in this world. God can use, by the way, a Peter, and he can use a Judas. And God can use a Moses, and in this text we're about to see, he can also use a Pharaoh. And he still remains just as he pours out his mercy. Verse 17 and 18. For this very purpose... I have raised you up. This is what the scripture says to Pharaoh. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, Pharaoh, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, conclusion, God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, let's just be honest. There's a tension point right there. What in the world is that saying? Now, in order to understand this, we've got to go back and remember the Exodus story um, from the book of Exodus. And, uh, and we've got to be reminded of what God is referring to here when we're talking about Pharaoh. You all remember this story? Even if you haven't read it, you've seen one of the movies. But you have Pharaoh. He's the ruler of Egypt. By the way, the term Pharaoh, the office of Pharaoh, literally meant one who mediates between God and man. Now that right there is already a front to Jesus Christ. There is only one mediator between God and man, and it ain't Pharaoh. So now we've got two kingdoms that are battling it out right here. And you remember the story of Israel, the people of Israel in Egypt. It started with Joseph. He was... Uh, one of the children of Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, and then the rest of his sons sold, sold Joseph out into slavery. He got shipped down to Pharaoh's court. He was in prison there. And what God, what the enemy meant for evil, God used for good. He redeemed him. Eventually, he kind of pulls him out of this slavery. He becomes one of the princes of Egypt. 
And then in God's sovereign plan, it enables Joseph to bring the rest of his family who previously betrayed him, but brings them in to be protected in a time of famine right there in Egypt. And this family of 70 people that enters in 400 years later will come out in the millions. And what happens is over time, a new Pharaoh enters into the picture, not the one that was there with Joseph, but a new one who now looks upon these millions of Jews and sees an economic opportunity and says, I'm going to enslave them. And for the next 400 years, uses these people for back-breaking labor, day in, day out, holding them hostage. And God, 400 years in, finally comes along and says, enough is enough. And in Exodus chapter 5, God is going to confront Pharaoh with Moses. And he's going to explain to him who the true king really is, that Pharaoh's an imposter. He is not the mediator. God is the one who's the ultimate arbiter of who will be spared and who will not. And so in Exodus 5, as God says that through Moses, remember Pharaoh's response, Exodus 5, 2, Pharaoh says back, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I ain't letting them go. Pharaoh says, you ain't God, I'm God. These are my people, not yours. And so God goes, okay, Pharaoh, so here's what's going to happen. Fast forward a few chapters, Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. God says this, all right, Pharaoh, it is for this purpose that I'm going to raise you up. And I'm going to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. That right there is the verse that Paul quotes in Romans 9. So here's what's happened. In other words, when I'm done saving my people, Pharaoh, and I am going to save them, you don't get the choice. I get the choice. I'm going to save these people. And when I do, I'm going to use you, Pharaoh, who have rejected my mercy. And I'm going to use you as a statement to the rest of humanity for all generations to come of who I am, my mercy and my power to save and redeem, and the consequence of those who will not receive that mercy. Now, the question is, how is God going to use Pharaoh as an example? The answer is, as we saw in verse 18 of Romans 9, he's going to do it through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. But here's where the tension comes in. If you've read Exodus, after God says this statement, 10 times in the book of Exodus, it says that Pharaoh hardens his own heart against God. But another 10 times in the same book of Exodus, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So which is it? Did he harden his, own, or harden his own heart or did God harden his heart? Which is it? The answer, not gonna like it, is both. It's exactly both. And let me show you how. How does God harden Pharaoh's heart? Here's how, and you need to know something. There is a verse in your Bible that when the Bible quotes other Bible verses, there's one verse in your Bible that is quoted more than any other verse in the entire Bible that the Bible uses over and over again. You know what it is? It is Exodus 34, six and seven. It's the most quoted verse in your entire Bible. And you know what Exodus 34, six and seven is about? It is about 
a description of who God is and his dealings with humanity, with a sinful people. I want you to listen to this because this is going to explain how Pharaoh's heart gets hardened. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, who is he? A God merciful and gracious. Isn't that interesting? By the way, right out of the gate, most of us tend to think, here are the stereotypes. The God of the Old Testament is mean and angry, and the God of New Testament is loving, as if it's two different gods. Yet the most quoted Bible verse over and over in the Old Testament is that God is a God of mercy and God is a God of grace. He is slow to anger and he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he keeps his steadfast love for thousands, forgiving their iniquity and their transgression and their sin. That's who God is. But... He is not lacking in his justice either. God is also a God of justice in that he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished. There is a time when his mercy will run out and will give people recompense according to what is due to them. But in the meantime, God is merciful and gracious. And so knowing this about God... And knowing how God dealt with Pharaoh, if you remember that account, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? You know how he did it? Through mercy. That's how he did it. God should have incinerated Pharaoh in Exodus 5-2. The moment he went, who are you? I'm God, you're not. I ain't letting your people go. He should have been toast right then. That would have been justice. But God gives Pharaoh not one, not two, not three, but 10 opportunities to repent. 10 opportunities. Do you know how crazy that is? If you're going to lock up my kids hostage, you're going to punish them, you ain't getting 10 opportunities with me. I'm sorry. About to jump in there and do some liberation right then. But God, he gives his enemies 10 opportunities of mercy, to repent. See, Peter had the same idea in mind, by the way. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. We want to accuse God of being, God, where's your justice? We're in the streets protesting. Where is your justice, God? Why haven't you stepped in and stopped this brokenness in this world? Why don't you put away evil? When we say that, what if God said, okay, let's start with you? We go, no, 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 not me. Let's <laughs> start out there, that, that evil out there. No, no, God's slowness to invoke his justice is not slowness as some would compare it. It's patience. Why is he patient? He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Is God unjust to Pharaoh for punishing him in the very end? Not at all. Only at the 10th plague and Pharaoh's 10th rejection does God invoke his due justice. You mess with my kids, I'm gonna mess with yours. And he takes the firstborn of Pharaoh's court and all those in the land. God is not unjust, but he is merciful. And he was merciful to everybody. Do you remember how God provided for his people? 
If you will take a lamb and sacrifice that lamb, you take the blood of that lamb who's going to substitute for you, is going to take the justice of God for you, and you put the, the blood of that lamb on the doorframe of your house, then that night when justice comes due, the angel of death will pass over your house and will take those who are not covered by the, the blood of the lamb. That was God's mercy to his people who took the covering of this substitute and were saved. And not just the Israelites, we were told as they're heading out, there were Egyptians with them. There are Egyptians who were saved in that event as well. God's mercy was unpartial everywhere. And when you read the Exodus account, you're meant to see the mercy of God being poured out, not just on God's people, but also on God's enemies over and over. That's the perspective we need to have, y'all. It's not that God is unjust. No, we need to see it from God's perspective going, he should hose every one of us, but he hasn't. He's merciful. That should tender your heart. But this is how he hardened Pharaoh's. Right? Every act of mercy only further exposed what was already in Pharaoh. God, can I just tell you something about predestination real quick? We're gonna, there's a lot more questions. We're going to try to close the gap on all of it next week. But I can just tell you this. Nowhere in the Bible, when you see predestination, is God taking good people and hardening them over to hell against their will. Taking people who want to love and worship God and put their trust in Jesus Christ and overriding that and then sending them to hell. The end, the end game is that nobody is going to be in hell who does not deserve to be there. And nobody is going to be in heaven who deserves to be there. God's justice for one, God's mercy for another. And to a world marred by sin, worthy of the due penalty of our rebellion to God, he pours out his mercy towards us. First in creation, and the common graces of air to breathe, and giving us the common graces of food to eat, and just the rains in due season, and then most specifically in revealing his word to us, his truth to us about the reality of our brokenness, our need for a righteousness we don't have, and the provision of Jesus Christ who came and took that penalty for us so that we could get the righteousness that is his by faith. Like that is God's mercy. And when that message is heralded to some, that mercy softens hearts and draws them in in faith. And yet that same message to others only furthers to harden their heart and expose the rejection that has always been there. Like to the Puritans used to say, the same sun that melts the ice is also the one that hardens the clay. To one, God's grace melts and redeems. To the other, like Pharaoh, it only serves to display the hardness that is already there. If you have a tender heart towards God, his kindness will melt you. You will see your unworthiness and you'll see his provision and his grace and his mercy for you and it will draw you in. But if your heart has already rejected Jesus, then I can promise you any kindness that God will show to you or any kindness that he will show even through his church, through other Christians, will only exasperate your heart even further and harden it even further. And when the time comes that God's kindness to you runs out and rest assured he is a just God, he will not let the guilty go unpunished, just like he did with Pharaoh, when that time comes, it will not be because he was not merciful to you. I assure you, 
Paul told us in Romans 5, the longer we go on putting off God and rejecting Jesus Christ as Savior, that hardening of our heart is only storing up wrath for the day to come. You think you're free right now because God ain't taking you out right now? It's only storing up wrath for the future day that will come. But here's the good news. The justice of God that will be due everybody at the very end has actually already come for us on the cross through Jesus Christ. And if you have put your trust in Jesus, the justice of God, the wrath of God has already been appeased for you in Jesus. That is, if you receive him, lest you harden your heart towards that message and you believe you're smarter than God and you reject him and you reject that message, it is only serving to expose the sin that is already there. And if God, if you reject him all the way to the end, that is not because God is unjust. He has poured out his mercy to you and it is his justice that will allow you to receive the due penalty of your sin. But in his mercy, he has given you his son, Jesus, that you might put your trust in him and be saved. Now, let me just tell you, I know there's other questions. I know there is. I've got them myself. We're going to speak to two more of the questions next week. And we're going to try, try to put some just some systematic thoughts around this. It's not going to ease every tension, but I think it is going to bring perspective. And we're going to look at that next week. But let me just sum it up this way. I'm, I may have shared this story before, but it's always just a helpful reframing. There was a season in my life where I was not a pastor. I was a glorious substitute teacher in Denton, Texas. And uh, it was one of the best jobs ever. Just press play on the movie and let them go. And I'd sit there at my desk. And there was a season when I was substitute teaching that I just finished college. I was in a discipleship program at a church where I was just learning my Bible and we happened to be in Romans chapter 9 earlier that morning. And so I left. I've got the same tensions you've got. I'm wrestling with it in myself. And I'm sitting at the desk, and the movie's playing. And I'm reading Romans 9. And a no lie, there's a kid, I'll call him Marshall, sitting in the middle of the room. You can tell he's the popular kid. Like he's just swooning the ladies. He's stirring up trouble with the guys, you know. You can tell he's trying to show off a little bit towards me. And they somehow in the middle of this little debate, they get into this debate about religion. And it comes to this, you know, people upset about a loving God who would allow good people to go to hell. What kind of God is that? And I remember he looks at me, he sees me, locks eyes on me, sees me read my Bible and goes, hey, teach, you Christian? It's like, yeah, you reading the Bible right now? It's like, yeah, he goes, I got a question for you. Gets up, walks straight to the desk, he goes, and it's so, it's just even pompous too. All right, how can a loving God allow a good person to go to hell? Explain that one to me. And I sat there, and man, I had a ton of compassion for this kid. So I'm asking the same questions. But here is my response to him after reading Romans chapter nine and understanding its context in Romans 1 through 3. I looked at him and said, hey, Marshall, man, I got to tell you, that is an absolutely great question. Probably one of the most common questions asked when reading this section that I happen to be in right now. How can a loving God allow a good person to go to hell? And I said, I've wrestled with that one for quite a bit, but can I tell you what is even 
a harder question for me to answer? It's not how can a loving God allow a good person to go to hell? I said, Marshall, the question I'm wrestling with after reading my Bible, how can a holy God allow somebody like me into his presence? How does a holy God who's pure in every way I said, Marshall, if you knew my story, if you knew what I have done, if you knew how I've rebelled against God, if you knew the mockery that I've made of his name, if you knew of the immoral relationships that I have been in, that's the question I'll never get over. And the truth is, y'all, the reason why we can't even ask the first question is because it doesn't exist. How can a loving God send a good person to hell? If you understand Romans 1 through 3, there are none who are good. Not when you compare to God's glory, God's goodness. And when you understand that, you feel the weight of that. You feel your unworthiness. And then you find out that this God, who has every authority and license and power to instantly send me to hell and cast me away forever, and he would be perfectly just for doing so has broken through time and space to grab somebody like me and open my eyes to see the faith that is in Jesus Christ and the mercy of God that has been poured out for me, that he would give his own son for me, that I would put my trust in him and be saved and cleansed for all eternity. I will never get over that question. I know what I deserve, but it's God's mercy that has redeemed us. Church, I know there are questions, and I do invite you to come back next week because we're going to ask third and fourth questions that are maybe the most difficult of all. But what I want you to hear is this. Hold the enigma. Just suspend it for just a moment about God's choosing and not choosing. And just hear the message of mercy this morning. You know why? Do you know why God is worthy of the rescue that he has given us? Because Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious, he is slow to anger with you. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And he has kept his steadfast love for thousands, thousands, including you. And he has forgiven your iniquity and your transgression and your sin. And he has taken his justice and has handed it over to Jesus on the cross for you. Do not harden your heart towards God. Do not continue by your hardness to store up wrath for the day of judgment. But give your life and humble yourself before the mercy of God. Receive the Father's everlasting love for you given through Jesus Christ and rest in that security that he has chosen you and he can never lose you. Let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your mercy. God, may that not harden us. God, may your mercy not well up pride in us to think that we, the finite, are smarter than you, the infinite. God, allow your mercy right now in this moment to melt our hearts. Show us 
the amount, the length that you have gone through to move heaven and earth before we were even born. Send your son to rescue and to redeem us and by your sheer mercy, take from us what we deserved and give to us what we did not deserve. Fuel us with worship and gratitude, God, for you are worthy, worthy of our worship to the God who is merciful. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.